Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, the important role that Florida played in the American Revolution is often overlooked. They became so incensed that they, they made effigies of John Hancock and Samuel Adams and hung them in the trees in the St. Augustine Plaza and set them on fire. And this colony was adamantly loyal when the war broke out. Sunnyland Magazine contributed to the Florida land boom of the 1920s. Sunnyland Magazine focused more on the individual, the people with a car, the people that may have been visiting in the wintertime, they wanted them to move here full time. And we'll discuss the B-52 bomber on display in Orlando. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. The so-called 13 original colonies that would lead to the creation of the United States exclude the 14th and 15th colonies of East Florida and West Florida. St. Augustine, Florida was an active city for more than four decades before the English established a settlement at Jamestown, Virginia in 1607. The Spanish gave Florida its name in 1513 and established the first continuously occupied European settlement in what would become the United States in 1565. After two centuries under Spanish occupation, the British took control of Florida in 1763. The British separated the area into East Florida with its capital in St. Augustine and West Florida with its capital in Pensacola. Under British rule, East Florida consisted of what is the modern boundary of the state east of the Apalachicola River. West Florida included the modern panhandle of Florida as well as parts of what are now Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama. Roger Smith focused his doctoral studies at the University of Florida on the topic of Florida in the American Revolution. Smith says that for the first 11 years of occupation, the British colonists in Florida had difficulties with the Seminole Indians. In 1774, uh, Governor Patrick Tonin arrived, and the very first thing he did in literally two weeks' time was call a Congress with Cowkeeper, and they instantly uh, became friends. And, and allies, and it was more than just political. They, uh, Cowkeeper absolutely respected Tonin and, uh, and trusted him at his word. And um, there, there was where the, where the relationship got built so that as the, as the revolution approached, the Seminoles truly became allies as opposed to you know, people who were, would be considered a, a, you know, someone just causing problems. You know, and, and, and so, so um, production, uh, agricultural production, began, to, began to, to, to blossom. The other thing that Tonin did was he built um, two rowboats that were so large, the only way I can describe them is they're like 18th century tugs. And they would literally, if they couldn't tug in, uh, you know, a large sloop over the, the notorious bar there, a sandbar there in St. Augustine, they would row out to the, uh, across the bar and unload ships 
uh, there and bring it into the harbor. So for the first time, uh, a decent amount of trade was actually coming and going from St. Augustine. And, uh, and, and so the, the colony actually um, began to prosper. And uh, so when, when 1776 came along, and on, on August 11th, when news of the Declaration of Independence became known in St. Augustine, the people were, were kind of like, you want us to do what? <laughs> we just started making money. And now you, are you, they became so incensed that they, they made effigies of John Hancock and Samuel Adams and hung them in the trees in the St. Augustine Plaza and set them on fire. And this colony was adamantly loyal when the war broke out. At the start of the American Revolution in 1776, East Florida and West Florida were the only two southern colonies that remained loyal to King George III. This was a problem for the British as the southern colonies in North America supplied food, clothing, and other supplies to their sugar plantations in the Caribbean. We always look at the American Revolution from an American perspective. Thirteen colonies from New Hampshire down to, down to Georgia, and we've always been told that nothing happened in the South until 1780 when Mel Gibson came along and won the war single-handedly. Um, actually, when, uh, when I looked at the war from a British perspective, uh, my first question was what maps were they looking at back then? And when you do that, you realize we're not talking about 13 colonies, we're talking about 33 colonies that they had to be concerned with from Nova Scotia down to Grenada. Half of those colonies, 16 of them, were in the Caribbean. And approximately 60% of the British military during the American Revolution was stationed in the Caribbean, not up where the fighting was, but down where sugar was being produced because sugar was the equivalent in, in global economics of, of crude oil today. It's what afforded empire. And the, the British, uh, when, when you read uh, their primary documents, you realize they had one primary goal, to, to not lose a square inch of soil uh, in the Caribbean to the Spanish, Dutch, or French. Priority number two was to reclaim the American South because by September of 1775, every southern colony between the Chesapeake Bay and the St. Mary's River had fallen to the rebellion. Only East and West Florida remained loyal. The Floridas were located right between the British sugar plantations in the Caribbean and the Northern Colonial Revolt. The British launched attacks on the American Rebellion from both St. Augustine in East Florida and Pensacola in West Florida. St. Augustine was particularly important to the British as it had the only stone fortresses south of the Chesapeake Bay. The British had repeatedly attacked the Castillo de San Marcos when it was under Spanish control and realized the strength of its coquina walls. And the British understood that the waterways, the seas, were, were they weren't barriers. That's how you got places faster. And in 1765, when the stamp tax revolt broke out, um, there were Sons of Liberty riots in Nevis and St. Kitts. So they understood that all this, this, this momentum of rebellion and sedition had to do was hit, was hit the water and start, you know, start right out into the Caribbean and, in, and into the Southern Atlantic. And they saw St. Augustine particularly because it had the only pair of stone fortresses south of the Chesapeake Bay. They saw uh, East and West Florida as barriers to sedition from rolling out into the Caribbean and then launching pads uh, for regaining the American South. Although the importance of Florida in the American Revolution is usually ignored in history books, George Washington was well aware of the area's strategic significance. 
Washington wrote more than 80 letters about the Florida colonies to the Continental Congress and his generals, and he authorized five separate invasions of East Florida between 1776 and 1780. You get into the George Washington Papers, and in 1775, in, in December 18th of 75, he writes John Hancock, the, pres uh, the uh, president of the Continental Congress, and says, we've intercepted a packet of letters bound for the, the, the Caribbean and St. Augustine. The British are stockpiling arms and munitions in the castle and barracks in St. Augustine. And Washington called for an army of militia to be authorized by Congress from Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia. Congress became so alarmed that on January 1st of 1776, they said, we're going we're gonna to make sure you get your militia army, and we're also going to add to that continental regulars from North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia. So this is, no, this is no border skirmish. And it was the first of five invasions that Washington um, called for and Congress authorized uh, on East Florida. So he fully understood the significance of East Florida and its, its potential role uh, in, in the American Revolution. Since East Florida remained under British rule during the American Revolution, it became a haven for British loyalists who moved there from the rebellion in the northern colonies. As Roger Smith explains, this actually allowed for East Florida to thrive. As far as a, a British colony was concerned, that was the best thing that happened to East Florida because it was a small colony when, when the war broke out. There was approximately 3,500 people, and the majority of them were slaves. Um, by 1778, there was a population of over 10,000, and, uh, and now there were enough people and, and sadly, slave population to get the colony to where it was producing enough to where they not only were fulfilling the needs of the colony itself, but they were picking up the slack in the Caribbean for the foodstuffs and the uh, flax for clothing and things that fed and clothed the slave population that produced the sugar. So the uh, embargo that the Continental Congress actually called upon for, for trade against the British West Indies ended up falling, uh, you know, uh, being a moot point because uh, East Florida literally picked up about 80% of the slack and, uh, and, and kept the Caribbean afloat in that regard. During a series of battles from 1779 to 1781, Spain was able to recapture West Florida from the British. When the American Revolution ended in 1783, England returned East Florida to the Spanish to keep control of Gibraltar. For these people down here, it was tragic because uh, the majority of them believed that they had earned the right, just as the Canadians had, to remain a British colony here in North America. They had fought, uh, they had fended off invasions, they had participated in the invasion of Florida, I mean of Georgia, and, uh, and, and then on into Charleston. And, uh, but the bottom line was um, the Spanish wanted Gibraltar. And, uh, and the British basically took the stance of, you tried twice during the war and you failed. We're not going to give it up at the treaty and here at a table. So better, you better come up with something else. And the Spanish said, fine. Um, We've already taken West Florida, let us keep that and we'll take East Florida. And the British said fine. It came down to, to you know, economics again because Gibraltar was so pivotal in controlling the flow of trade in and out of the Caribbean and the British weren't willing to give that up. But these poor people down here who had fought and bled and, and, and set up new lives and, uh, and, and thought that they had found you know, kind of their forever home uh, were basically traded back like pawns. And, uh, and it, it didn't go well. 
is there was a lot of resentment down here. Florida would become a United States territory in 1821 and was named a state in 1845. During the Civil War, Florida seceded from the Union, which is probably why its role in the American Revolution has been minimized. You see during the Civil War, uh, not a lot of history produced, uh, you know, and a lot of writing, not a lot of scholastic work makes sense. You get into uh, Reconstruction and, uh, and, and the Northern Industrialists are now looking back to their trading partners and in Europe and saying, okay, let's get things going again. And they basically look at us and say, gee, you know, you guys kind of imploded here and you haven't been around that long, you know. And, uh, and it was like, no, 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 we, we had, we're 13 united colonies. That was nothing but a hiccup. And, and now, he says, we actually, they, that's what they said, we actually have professional historians for the first time in our country's history. Because it wasn't until the 18, early 1880s that you could get a PhD in history. So, so they basically said, it's time to write official histories of the beginnings of our country in the American Revolution. And uh, well, let's, let's look at which universities had, had history departments to do that. They were, I mean, the Southern schools were, were all but wiped out. And they were in existence, but, but their, their, uh, their population, their student populations were, were so decimated. And uh, so who was writing that history? Well, it was the University of Chicago and uh, Northwestern and uh, you know, the Ivy Leagues and the Northern schools. And it was uh, not an era of political correctness. They took the opportunity to get their own little bit of vengeance on the, on the South, and they basically wrote the Southern colonies out of the first five years of the American Revolution. Dr. Roger Smith is author of The 14th Colony, The American Revolution's Best Kept Secret, and other books. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, watch our public television series, Florida Frontiers, subscribe to our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Sunshine on my shoulders makes me happy sunshine in my eyes can make me cry joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, the Florida land boom of the 1920s didn't happen by accident. There were certainly well-orchestrated efforts to promote the state as a great place to live. 
Yeah, that's right, Ben. The 1920s, at least the early part of the 1920s, is a period we call the land boom era in Florida's history. And it was a time of tremendous growth in terms of the state's population, growth in infrastructure, and also in land speculation. There were a lot of people coming from all over the country to get in on the real estate game. They were trying to sell planned developments throughout the state of Florida and turn swampland essentially into homes. So they were filling in mangrove islands and places like that. So there was a lot of environmental changes that were occurring, but there was also just a a tremendous amount of people traveling to the state. And a lot of that was precipitated by the use of the automobile and the fact that the automobile became more and more accessible to a lot of people and also the network of rail lines coming into Florida. So after the First World War, Florida became really the center of promotion for a lot of these real estate developers, but also for the state. Now remember too that Florida was a very small state, comparatively speaking, at the turn of the 20th century. So we were only just north of a million people living in the state of Florida, if you can believe that. So after the First World War, a lot of people were moving here seeking opportunities to find their wealth, which is a common theme throughout Florida's history. But this very short period from about 1920 to 1926, 1927, we haven't really seen anything like it. It was absolutely a time in Florida's history that saw the most concerted efforts, as you pointed out, through publications and through marketing campaigns to try and get people to move to Florida and get involved in this massive land boom. And one of the most widely circulated of these promotional publications was the monthly Sunnyland magazine, which you have some editions of here. Yeah, that's right, Ben. We're looking at actually the first edition. This is the volume one, number one of Sunnyland Magazine, and it was first printed in October of 1924. And as you said, this became one of the most widely circulated of the promotional ephemeral literature that was being produced. Now, the state of Florida was producing its own. The Department of Agriculture still had an immigration department in the 1920s, and they were trying to promote farmers to come to Florida, but also families and and people to move to Florida and relocate their entire lives. But the state was really mostly concerned with industry. They wanted big business to come to Florida and start paying for infrastructure developments. But the Sunnyland magazine focused more on the individual, the people with a car, the people that may have been visiting in the wintertime. They wanted them to move here full-time and seek all of the benefits that Florida had to offer. And this was printed by the Peninsular Publishing Company that was based out of Tampa. And a lot of the board of editors, if you look at the names, a lot of these people were involved in one way or another with real estate development. You can tell, flipping through these pages, that there was a reason that this magazine was being produced, and it really was just to sell land. But the magazines are fascinating for a lot of other reasons. It really gives us a great documentation of the 1920s land boom. It can be difficult to identify the individual stories that would lead people to leave their home in, say, Nebraska and travel all the way down to Florida, risking it all in the 1920s. But when you look at a publication like this, it's, it's clear to see that they were selling an idea. In fact, looking at the editor's note on the first edition, they say here, quote, We give you Sunnyland with a heartfelt wish that it may be helpful in the upbuilding of Florida through the dissemination of truthful and worthwhile information regarding the state, and will make many friends for Florida through the appeal in its pages. And if in doing this we make friends for the magazine itself, we shall have been well repaid, unquote. So this was their intention, at least, or what they were presenting going forward. But some of the articles really are fascinating, and they run the gamut. There are some great historical articles talking about the history of Jacksonville and Tampa and Miami and Alachua County and places like that. But there are also these really curious articles, one of which I pulled from the first edition is entitled 
live outdoors in Florida and live 100 years. And it's the profile of a man named James E. Monroe. They're calling in the magazine here Major James Monroe, who claims to be 109 years old. He's living just south of Jacksonville on the St. Johns River, claims to have lived in Florida since 1862. And they go into this very long article about all the things. He, he swims in the St. Johns River every morning and has a hammock out back underneath the cypress trees and uh, just on the river. So all of these little components that helped help him to live to be 109 years old. This is the kind of stuff that they're doing. It really is just a massive advertisement. What's also interesting about these magazines is the quality of the publication. So I mentioned it was printed by the Peninsular Company. They were also printing these in multicolor printings, which was very rare in the 1920s. In fact, if you look through just the covers alone, the Art Deco, Art Nouveau style of artistry is remarkable. And again, the articles themselves add a lot of light and color to this period in Florida's history. Now, Sunnyland magazine suddenly ceased publication when the land boom of the 1920s crashed, right? Yeah, that's right, Ben. The the magazine was only in publication from 1924 until March of 1926. And that kind of falls in line with the crash, the the housing bubble essentially burst in the late 1920s. And this predates the national crash, economic crash of 1929, which led to the Great Depression. In Florida, there were other factors, and a major factor had to do with this rampant land speculation. People were sinking their entire fortunes into land that was underwater. You know, they were buying it sight unseen. So there were a lot of kind of shady deals that were occurring in Florida. And unfortunately, these kind of publications promoted some of that kind of business. So, uh, yeah, they ceased publication. They essentially ran out of funding because the, the publication was funded by advertisers. So if there were no developers that wanted to advertise through these pages, they couldn't essentially publish this, as I said before, really a, an appealing, visually appealing looking large scale magazine. So there are only a handful of editions that exist today. Uh, we're looking at only the, the first edition here. We have about a dozen in our collection. So unfortunately, we don't have all of them. We're missing a few here and there. The shape ranges from fair to falling apart because, again, these are magazines. They were ephemeral in nature. They weren't designed to last, you know, 100 years. But they found their way to the archive, so we do our best to uh, to try and preserve these materials so we can better understand the, the mechanisms that uh, helped this land boom occur in the 1920s. Fascinating piece of history as always, Ben. Thanks. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. If you'd like to see the first edition of Sunnyland Magazine we've been discussing, check out our web extras at myfloridahistory.org. Sunshine Almost This is Florida Frontiers. A B-52 bomber is displayed in Orlando at what used to be McCoy Air Force Base. Public historian Osmer Lewis has the story. The B-52 was crucial to McCoy, beginning with World War II, continuing through Vietnam, really. It was a home for the B-52, a training ground for the B-52, and uh, uh, really contributed Uh, not only to our military successes, but also a great deal to the economy of Orlando. That was Dr. James Clark from the University of Central Florida, who talked to me about the role of the B-52 in Orlando's history. At Orlando International Airport, on a small lot just off of Bear Road, sits a B-52 bomber, two dedication plaques, 
and not much else that would separate B-52 Memorial Park from any other public park. As one of the last remnants of the now-defunct McCoy Air Force Base, the park does little to remind visitors of the rich military history of McCoy Air Force Base and the city of Orlando. Bases further south and bases further west had reluctance. As, uh, as you know, in 1957 and 1972, there were crashes here in Orlando and other emergencies. And so I think that the uh, Army Air Corps and later the Air Force were looking for a place where they could be alone. And South Florida certainly did not want that. People don't realize that the first supersonic planes were tested here and then moved out to California because they were worried about crashes. Unlike Medill over in Tampa or the southern uh, Florida bases, we had lots of room for uh, airplanes to to crash. We had uh, lots of room for them to carry out bombing uh, exercises. And uh, we had extremely long runways. I think that the open spaces uh, were the primary draw here uh, and our geographic location, just as it uh, years later would draw the space program to Cape Kennedy. Soon, growth in Central Florida led city leaders and the Air Force to negotiate a different relationship. The biggest reason was Walt Disney. In uh, the early 1960s, the city of Orlando and the Air Force signed an unusual deal to share the Air Force base. People still shake their heads at this because nobody thought this would ever happen. But basically, one runway was turned over to the city of Orlando. At the time, it wasn't really an inconvenience. Delta Airlines started flights uh, going in there, but most of the business remained at the Herndon Airport, downtown Orlando. Here, Dr. Clark explains what led to Orlando International Airport replacing McCoy Air Force Base. Once Disney opens uh, in uh, 1971, millions and millions of tourists begin flying in here, and what was a kind of secondary use for the airport suddenly becomes the primary use for the airport. So I think the coming of Disney, I also think the coming of the uh, space program at the Cape played a huge role. Suddenly you have companies like Martin with thousands of employees here and executives coming in and out. You have NASA officials coming in and out and using the Orlando airport rather than the uh, small airport in Titusville. And so you just have this tremendous boost in traffic. And I'm not sure the Air Force could have remained there. It's hard to keep flying uh, top-secret flights when you've got millions of passengers a year coming in and out of there. After McCoy Air Force Base closed down in 1975, the city of Orlando opened B-52 Memorial Park on April 17, 1985. Although there are a few subtle references to the old base, I wanted to know why Orlando's military history was able to be so silently swept into obscure history. I think that people just don't associate Orlando with a military base. Uh, We've renamed it uh, from McCoy Air Force Base, named after a, a pilot who was killed in a crash here in Orlando, to Orlando International Airport. Although for millions of flyers, it must be a kind of a mystery 
their luggage tag still says MCO, uh, and they must wonder what the heck that stands for. But uh, other than that, there's really nothing to let people who fly in and out of here know that, hey, this was once a, a major defense base. I'm Osmer Lewis, a student with the Public History Program at the University of Central Florida. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. You can also listen as a podcast. Join the conversation on Facebook and find us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.